Good morning, everybody. I'm Chris Pates. Good to see you this morning. I come back from a men's retreat, fired up, ready to beat somebody up. Right, Brando? You ready? Uh, no, just kidding. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Brando's the fighter. Fight him. Um, we're glad that you are here with us as we continue our book study. Let me tell you, is Terrence, is Terrence here? Terrence, are you here? He might not be here today. We mentioned our campus Sundays coming up in a couple of weeks. I want you to wear your alma mater, represent your campus, and uh, we'll have flags. And we're on we're on the campuses of TSU, U of H, and Rice University this year. We're very excited about being on Rice. Finally, super pumped about it. It's going to be awesome. And then Terrence Chapman, really, the question about you know who has the best chicken sandwich is out there right now. I know you guys. I'm going to talk about it. You are going to get hungry before the message is over. We are talking about Jesus today. He's better than Popeye's chicken sandwich. Ah, he's better than Chick-fil-A. Ha, he is amazing. But Terrence's chicken and waffles make you speak in tongues. I'm just going to tell you, that's the good stuff right there. The way he does it is so good. And so if you're a college student, you want to make sure you sign up and get some free Terrence chicken and waffles. Let me give you a little bit, brief rundown of where we've been this whole summer. We've been going through the book of John. John is one of the disciples of Jesus. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Little bit of history about John. John, they tried to kill him. They tried to murder him. They tried to tar him. And he would not die. So they sent him to the island of Patmos. And that is where he got and wrote the Revelation. That's the, the last book of the New Testament. He writes that there. Then he gets sent back out of that island to Ephesus. And in Ephesus... He notices that the churches are all discombobulated and not sure about, not all of them, but a lot of them confused about who Jesus is. And, and there's a lot of confusion and craziness going throughout the body of Christ at that time. And of course, he mentions it in Revelation as he's talking to these seven churches. But he gets to Ephesus and he sees it. And there's some other things going on and some heresy going on. So he writes the book of John to give his version of the gospel, which is the same thing that the other three have, but he has stories and different elements that he is trying to pull out that the other three gospels did not extract. And so for him, his main thing was to help you see that Jesus is the son of God and see the divinity of Jesus. And he does this by using these seven I am statements. And we have hit four out of the seven. We are up to John chapter 11, and this is our last week of John. For now, we're going to hit it back in the spring and through the summer. But we're going to be in John chapter 11. Before we get there, I want to show you some of these I am statements. I am, John 6, 35. John said, Jesus declared himself, I am the bread of life. I am the one who sustains you, who gives you life. I am the light of the world. We talked about John 8, 12. I am the door of the sheep. The only way to get to the Father is through the door. He was very explicit about that. I am the good shepherd in John 10, 11. And we spent a few weeks talking about shepherding and sheep. This week, our last week, week 14 in John, we're looking at John 11 with the key I am statement of I am the resurrection and the life. Anybody believe that in here? Amen. 
He is the resurrection and the life. And he is going to tell us what that means. And we're going to see in context what that is, what he's trying to say. So John chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go verse by verse. We've got about 44 verses, so get ready. It's a lot. Here we go. Come on. Now, a certain man was ill. Okay, I grew up. In 1980, I was born, grew up kind of more in the 90s. I don't, didn't actually like the 80s much. But I remember when Fresh Prince of Bel-Air came out and everything was ill. Um, that's what I think of. I'm sorry. That's just where my brain goes. We need to bring that back, you know. It's ill. Come on, Chris. We need to bring that back, bro. Come on. Or maybe not. Okay, so a certain man was sick. He was ill. Lazarus, this was the man of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary, this Mary, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is sick. Now, Jesus, if you remember from last week, Jesus had proclaimed, I and the Father are one. Proclaiming his deity. And in that, they picked up stones to kill him. So he got away and he went east to Jordan and to the Jordan River. It says where John the Baptist first was baptizing people. And Jesus proclaimed this about John the Baptist. He said, John never did any signs, never did any miracles. But he was considered to Jesus greater than Moses, greater than anybody. And this is why. Because Jesus said, he pointed to me. It's a pretty bold statement. No other spiritual leader, religious leader would dare proclaim something like that. But no one has come across, unless they were completely insane, to declare I'm God. But John has been explicit in showing us that. Jesus is proclaiming that. They picked up stones to kill him. He goes back almost to the beginning where he was first baptized, where John baptized him. And John was baptizing people. And that's where he was. And it was a town east called Bethany. Now, there was a different Bethany just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem where the temple was and where they would go and do all the celebrations. That Bethany is where Lazarus was. So they sent on a few days journey people to go tell Jesus, listen, this brother, this man that you love is ill. And I love this because they didn't plead to him and say, you know, this guy who really, really loves you. And he's done all this great things for you. And he's given you all this money. And he's helped your ministry. Almost trying to manipulate him. No, no, no. What they spoke of is his love for him. And it wasn't an audacious claim. It wasn't out of bounds to claim that. In fact, scripture would say this. It's not that I love God. It's that God first loved me. That's the fuel to me. Because if it's just about my love for God, we get into this works mentality that God owes me healing. God owes me a good life. God owes me that job. But God doesn't owe anything. In fact, he was the one who paid everything for me. So it's not about my love for him. It's ultimately first and foundationally about his love for me. And this is how they appeal. You know that one whom you love He's sick. Is this how you approach God when something is in your body 
sickness or you have some kind of ailment or friend or something going on, like we've all had these times of despair and disappointment and hopelessness, do we appeal to God by his love and who he is and by his grace and by his mercy? And do we appeal to him saying, listen, this body, this is yours. It's sick. I know you love me, but I'm sick but I'm hurting, verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Oh, that's great news. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. So imagine the people that were sent, the messengers heard that. So then they're journeying back to tell Mary and Martha. And how many times has Jesus, even with a spoken word, healed people from a distance? So they're going to come back and tell Mary and Martha, listen, Jesus said he's not going to die. And they're sure going, okay, good. See, in that season, even now, in that time of season, we looked at uh, last week, it was around winter time, there would be flu season that would come in, and most scholars believe Lazarus probably got the flu, so they're taking care of him, trying to help him, but he's sick and not getting better, so now they're hearing, okay, Jesus said it's going to be okay. I love verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So it wasn't just a statement that people said, but he did genuinely love them. And here's a key word, verse six. So, or therefore, because he loved him, he's gonna show his love. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So let me get this straight. Jesus proclaims to be God. He's healing people. He's doing all these things. He finds out he's sick, and so he stays put. He says he loves them, so he stays. God is always late, isn't he? According to our timeline. Every time, like, God, you got to come through. You got to do this. I know you love me. But I'm struggling with this, or I've got this sickness, or I've got this family member going crazy, or I've got this job problem. God, you've got to move. And God says, oh, I do love you so much. Hold on. Let me show you my love. And often we're going, okay, where are you? What are you doing? Because God is just seemingly always late. And like, why aren't you moving yet? And yet the scripture says it's because he loves them. And then he expounds, verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, after what? After a couple days, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again. So let me get this straight. We just fled there. And now we're going back. We're going to die, man. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is Jesus saying here? In that culture, in that time, they would work 
during the day, typically those 12 hours from sunup to sundown, they would work. And when it started to get dark, they would stop working. They didn't have the amenities and things we have to continue to work. And, and honestly, eight hours is a long time to work anyway, right? They're working eight hours a week, six days, eight hours a day, six days a week. But he's saying when it's time to be done, when the sun starts going down, our work is done. It's time to be done. And what he's saying is, you think we're going into darkness and going into dread and just going to be killed. But see, my light isn't out yet. And it's still time to work. God has told me we're still working, even in the midst of fear. And how many times do we know, like, we're supposed to do something, but it's going to lead maybe to our destruction or to some kind of death within us? Or God says, I want you to do this. I've got you to step out into this business or in this area or do it ethically in this way. And you're going, yeah, but I could go this way. And God says, no. I've got work to do in the midst of that situation, and I want you to go forward because I'm calling you into the light. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. In other words, good, we don't have to go there. We don't have to go to our death. Yay. We don't have to go where you're calling us to go and do the thing that you're calling us to do because I'm afraid it's going to lead to something really, really, really bad because oftentimes when God tells you to do something, at least in the immediate, it's not always beneficial to you. It's not always easy. There might be a death, so we're always looking like for a way out. Oh, well, he's asleep. Great. Let's not, now if he was dead, yeah, we need to go there, but he's asleep. And Jesus often uses this phrase, especially when he's dealing with believers, the concept of just falling asleep because you're going to wake up one day into resurrection power. That's death for the believer. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, verse 13, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. In other words, I'm going to do something that's going to take your belief to a whole nother level. And I'm glad even in the midst of this test and something really, really hard, you're going to see another facet of me. And how many times do we see this? Like we think God is this. And we kind of make this box and say, God, I need you to do this. And he comes through, but then God's going, hey, what about this? And we go, I don't know if you're that big. And Jesus is saying, I'm glad you're about to see me in my glory. I love Thomas here, oh, doubting Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is very sarcastic. He's like, and he's not, they're not telling Jesus, like, uh, he's like sarcastic. They're like, all right, I guess we're going to die. Talking to the disciples, let's just, let's go to our death. Here we go. I guess we're following Jesus. We're going to pick up our cross. We'll be in beautiful land one day. Let's go to our death, John eleven seventeen. He says, now, when Jesus came, he enters Bethany. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
The four days is a very important thing because, see, typically when someone dies, you would have in that culture, I mean, they would within 24 hours have some type of uh, a burial, try to get them ready, whether they're wrapping them. Typically, depending on how much money you had, they wouldn't embalm everybody, but they would begin some of the process because they knew that the body's going to start decomposing, especially after day three. In fact, some later kind of Jewish sources indicate a belief that the soul would actually hover, hover over the body, hoping to re-enter it, but then give up and depart. Because oftentimes, or not oftentimes, but there were times where they would begin the process of burial and within 24, maybe even 72 hours, something would just miraculously happen and the person would come back to life. Or maybe they, they thought they were dead and they weren't. And so all of a sudden this would happen. And so they had this belief that the soul is just waiting. But of course, after that third day, and we know physiologically too, that the body is decomposing, it changes colors, it starts to smell. And so they're like, after that third, I mean, there's nothing we could pray. There's nothing else can happen. In fact, a lot of times in their tomb, they would have like a window at the top because they believe now that's where the soul's going to escape through. This was kind of the common vernacular for them and common belief. And so now it had been four days. There's no such thing as resurrection at this point with the body decomposing, with them getting everything ready and the body stinking. It says, Bethany was near Jerusalem. About two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. If you know much about Martha and Mary, Mary's constantly sitting, and Martha's constantly doing and going. If you know the story of Mary and Martha, and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, which doesn't just mean she's just sitting there worshiping him. But she's listening to his teaching. Sitting at his feet was a form of saying, I'm your disciple and I'm listening to everything that you're saying so that I can go do it. And for her, that was the most important thing. And Mary's running around getting everything ready for all the disciples and all the people around them. And Mary, or Martha says to Jesus, rebuke Mary, have her help me. And Jesus says, she's chosen the better thing. So Mary is this kind of type A worker. She's always getting things done, and we need people like that. That is not all bad. But the thing that you're going to see in the beauty of these two different personalities is how they deal with tragedy and how they relate with Jesus, but even better, how Jesus relates with them. You see, Mary is sitting there despondent, obviously discouraged, and she loves Jesus. She hears he's within the vicinity. And it's Martha that says, man, I'm going to go talk to that man. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think there's kind of twofold to this. I think there's a level of frustration because remember she had heard, you said this wouldn't end in death. And so you were wrong. Maybe for the first time you were wrong. You said something was going to be this way and it wasn't. I've seen you heal people and it didn't come to be. If you would have been here, how many times did she say that in her head? And how many times did she struggle with that? And how many times in the midst of our pain and our tragedy and our problems do we go, God, if you would just be here, obviously, Things would have been different. I guess you're just not here. You don't care. But then she kind of does like what we do a lot of times with our authority and people we respect. We're going to backtrack and just kind of say, yeah, 
but even now I know you can do whatever God asks, God will give to you. Like, I know you're still the boss, but I'm hurting. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha gets theological. I know. That's how she talks, by the way. I know. And he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I think there's a little bit of sass, but a little bit like, okay, you're trying to console me. And Jesus is going, no, I'm not just a comforter. I'm not just a helper. I'm not just here to console you or make you feel better. Because notice what he says next. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. See, there's a part of me that you haven't experienced yet. And there's something I've got to do to show you another facet of who I am so that you can believe for greater things than even where you've been. And so that you can see me do something that you didn't think was possible because anything, all things are possible with God. He says this, and listen, he's not saying, I'm going to be resurrected one day. He's not saying, I will show you how you can live so that you will be resurrected. What he's saying is, I am the resurrection. I am your resurrection. I am the way anybody gets resurrected. My resurrection is yours. I've been raised for you. See, here's the thing. The essence of Christianity comes down to personal pronouns. You, you could say all day long, the son of God was born, he died, he was raised, he ascended, he's coming again. That does not make you a Christian. It doesn't. Just because you might believe that there's a God and some of these things happen does not make you a Christian. It's the personal pronouns that make you a Christian. So saying this, the son of God was born for me. He died for me. He was raised for me. He ascended to the right hand of the Father for me, and he's going to come again for me. That's the essence of Christianity. And this is what he's posing to her. Not I was, not I would be. I am right now life. I am resurrection now. Do you believe that for yourself? Or do you just believe it in general? Like we believe the moon doesn't really have light, but it reflects light from the sun that doesn't change your life just knowing that, but knowing that Jesus died for me, resurrected for me. Here's a takeaway. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died as you and resurrected so you can too. See, the big difference is yeah, Jesus died for him. No, no, no. He died as you. His death is your death because he didn't have to die. He chose to die for your sin. See, your and my sin had separated us from God, destroyed the relationship between God and man and man and man and nature. And Jesus came in as a perfect person and said, I will be the one that takes the punishment for you. Do you believe in me for you? Do you believe that I didn't just die for you, but as you, that's called substitutionary atonement. He substituted himself for me. And so now his death is my death and I associate myself so much, that's my identity. 
His burial was my burial. So when I'm baptized, I'm buried with Christ. And my old person is dead. My old way of living is dead. And I need a new life. So his resurrection becomes my resurrection. I'm so associated with him. I don't just hear Jesus and I hear, yeah. I hear, gosh, that was for me. That's the life I need. That's what it means to be the resurrection and the life. But he continues this when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, whoever, anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, and here's the key, and believes in me shall never die. And this is our question. Do you believe this? This, this gets into really hard territory in our culture today because it's very exclusive. And it saddens me when people have a hard time with the exclusivity of Christianity because it's not just some belief we're making up. It's the very thing that we're saying we believe God said about himself. You have to believe in me. I'm the door. I'm the only way. Otherwise, if there were multiple other ways, Jesus is at the Garden of Gethsemane and says, if there's any other way, and there was no other way, he had to die. It had to be him, and it had to be through him, and it had to be this perfect vessel, this God-man come to be death, to become sin, but ultimately to become resurrection and life. And he looks at her and says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. She didn't quite grasp what he was saying. John, verse 28, 11, 28 says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. I think this is significant, and John is trying to help us see something that Jesus knows the sorrow and the pain that is going through them right now. In fact, when they have a funeral in that time, they would actually have these jars that were considered tear jars, and they would try to fill these jars. And the more jars you could fill, the more love it showed and popularity it showed for the victim or the person that was dead. And so they would actually hire professional criers to come and cry and just fill tears. And the more tears, the more, oh, look at our love. And you have that. You see when it says the Jews, the people, people that are hired just to cry. And you know this, if somebody starts to laugh, even if a joke wasn't funny, you're just kind of, it makes you laugh. Somebody starts to cry even if you're not necessarily going through what they're going through, there's a compassion that comes. And this is the environment that they're in. And Mary gets up and she has to go to Jesus. Jesus knowing what's going on, Jesus stayed where he was because oftentimes, listen, God through his power and his power alone resurrects us, saves us, only he can do it. But once you are a believer, once you believe, here's what he asks. He says, you draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. He says, now I'm putting some onus on you. Do you love me? Come on. And this is Mary. Jesus didn't go to her and just console her. He's waiting, and he's saying, do you believe me? 
Will you come to me? Will you draw near to me? And Mary has to get up and go to him. When the Jews were there in her house, verse 31, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where have we heard that again? Over and over, her and her sister, God, if Jesus would have just been here. She's hurting. She's despondent. And, you know, here's the deal. We know the rest of the story. Like if you've read the Bible or you've heard a sermon and the resurrection is coming and it's powerful and he's going to raise Lazarus up. We know the whole book. But what about in your life when God seems to be late and God didn't show up and he's saying, come, I want to meet with you. Trust me that I do love you. And we don't know the rest of the book. Do we think our pain is pointless? We can kind of put ourselves in her shoes feeling, why am I going through this? And yet, there's a plan in the pain, and we know this. And God works so much through pain. Even if it doesn't meet our expectation of what we think it should happen, God moves because it's us that need to adjust and come into his image, not him, into our image. Praise God. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, verse 32, and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, as we saw, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died. Now, Jesus doesn't go back and forth theologically with her, doesn't ask her any questions. He knows there's a level of intimacy. And I think he's looking at her like, okay, verse 33. I love that he approaches and talks and has different relationship with Martha than he does Mary, which speaks so much to us that God is not trying to deal with everybody collectively, but personally, relationally, he cares about you. He knows how to communicate to you specifically for the thing you need. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping at his feet and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? I think he's in business mode. They said to him, Lord, come see. And they brought him. And this is the easiest Bible verse to memorize. Jesus wept. The question is, why did he weep? Did he, was it just crocodile tears? Was he just trying to fill some of that, those jars as well to say I'm a part of this? I mean, he knew he was about to heal him. So I don't think he was just weeping for him. But in general, he's caring and loving and compassionate. And weeping because he is an expressive and emotional God showing that emotions aren't bad in and of themselves. God himself is weeping. And you see this throughout scripture where he's grieved in his heart and he's hurting for people. He's not just up there going, I don't care. I think this should bring some sense of relationship and understanding to us going, man, God weeps when I weep. Even though he knows the end and even though he knows the plan and even though he can just be like, it's going to be fine. Like when my teenage daughter tells me about her problems and I'm going, you have no idea. I get to sit there and go, well, let me tell you some problems. Because you're just a little teenage girl. Or do I get down and show compassion for where she is? Because that's what she needs. Jesus wept, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
not loved, past loves, present, because once God loves you, that doesn't go away. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It's a present love. It's never just in the past. You loved me one time, and then we fell out of love. No, it's not how God works. He loves him. They had it wrong. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Haters are going to hate, 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 hate. Always. There's going to be somebody in the crowd. I love this, verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. That's, that's actually a really bad translation. The, the Greek, it's not just deeply moved. The word is outraged. Jesus outraged. I love that. We see his compassion and his tears, and then we see his anger. Why is he angry? Because he comes to the tomb, says it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. I think he knows in a few weeks he's going to be in a tomb too. And he knows no matter what society says, death is just a part of life. Jesus would say, this was never the plan. You go to a funeral, it's never the plan. God did not want death. God did not orchestrate death. He is not the giver of death. He's the giver of life. And the person who says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he's outraged and he sees the tomb and he goes, this was not my plan for my children ever. And I want to put death to death. Jesus think also was outraged because he had feelings and he knew as soon as he speaks for life to come out of that tomb he is burying himself because this is going to be the last miracle the last sign he gives that ultimately orchestrates his death because he's going to grow so powerful and people are going to see and the jealousy and the fear of their religion and their ways is going to juxtapose with Jesus' miracle working power and he knows as soon as I call him out I'm sentencing myself to death verse 39 Jesus says take away the stone Martha the sister of the dead man said to him Lord by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, shut up. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? You think I'm just saying move this? Like, what? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I love this prayer. Father, I thank you. You have heard me. I know you hear me. We talk. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this now. He's talking to God, but he's also talking to people. I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. This is about my glory, ultimately glorifying you. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I love Charles Spurgeon. He's called the Prince of Pre Preachers for a reason because Charles Spurgeon in preaching this message said he had to say the word Lazarus because if he didn't say Lazarus, all of the graves would empty because that's the resurrection power 
of the one who has life. He had to give a name. Calling you out. I love this. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips. And his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, un bind him and let him go. See, Jesus does the miracle working power. We sang it earlier. You still do miracles and he does. But after the miracle, after the work of salvation and resurrection power that only God can orchestrate and do, he then calls the people around him. You need to unbind them. He calls the church and he calls everybody in here that calls himself a Christian. You need to go disciple them. You need to go help them get out. You don't just wait on me now that they're free and I've got something in them. I need you to help continue the process of healing. And that's our part that we play. That yes, he works and he does everything to begin, but he wants us to labor with him as co-laborers to watch people set free. And God is constantly setting people free. I'll tell you, I was at this men's retreat and many of you know, I've talked, and I've, I, I try not to talk too much about it because it's hard too. But I want to be honest with you because as you read the scripture, it changes. The scripture doesn't change it, but I change and the layers of it change depending on my life. And I'm reading this coming from, as many of you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was at my dad's federal prison sentencing. And I'm listening to the judge talk to him. He had the FBI raid his house a year ago on child pornography charges. It's my biological father. So I get the call. I'm hearing about this. And a couple weeks ago, I have to go fly to Missouri, go to the court. I'm sitting there hearing the horrible things that are happening. And, and I, I, my dad is repentant. Um, God is, is restoring him and redeeming him. It does show us what sin does when you have secrets. The enemy has leverage and we just continue to go darker and darker. So nobody can say, how dare you do that? Because I know without God, I could end up in really bad places. We're all one decision away from ruining our lives. One decision. And I'm in, in that federal court building and I'm seeing my dad in orange suit and chains he gets six years in prison. I'm hearing these awful things. The next day I have to fly and then come here and preach three services. And I'm in the middle of that. And we, after that, we pray. And he has a few people from his church. They're there and they're great people and they mean well. But one of them looks to me and just says, you just look so much like your dad. Your mannerisms, you're just like your dad. And I'm thinking, she's, she doesn't know what she's saying. She doesn't understand. Some people, people say things that are awkward when they don't know what to say. So I'm giving the benefit of the doubt, but I keep hearing that. You're, you look just like your dad. And I know I've got his blood in me. I know he's not all bad. He's done some great things, but this thing, yeah, right now, it hurts and it's hard. And I think the enemy tries to come in and say, man, what are you going to end up like? Anybody heard that before? What are you like? And I love it because I was at this men's retreat and I go to the front and a guy prays for me and he speaks a prophetic word to me about this situation and says something to the effect if you're not genetically what your genes say, that's not who you are. And for me, I know that I'm a pastor, I speak it, but man, that voice has been, man, 
Am I just gonna be like my dad? Am I just gonna end up doing something wrong? And I read this and I'm reminded, no, 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 see, I've got different blood in me. I've got resurrection power in me because the blood of Christ has changed my identity so much. I'm not just a short, white, overweight male with a last name, Pate. I am a son of God, the most high God, that has now, because of his blood, given me a transfusion, and I have a resurrection power in my life. I'm not that. I'm this. I'm not bound. I'm free. The resurrection power and life of Jesus has set me free, and it can do the same for you. And this is what Jesus came to do. Not just heal people. I've seen people healed. I've seen people die. But at the end, he says, if you believe in me, you'll never die. And I'm still doing miracles today, and I want to do a miracle in you. But the greatest miracle is a new you. Is a, a, a you that is renewed. Old things have passed. All things have become new. I want you to stand to your feet because we're going to close this service. And we're going to sing. We sang it earlier. Your name is victory. Why is he victorious? Because he gives you a new life and he gives you a new purpose. When you have those personal pronouns of, God, I believe you died not just for me but as me. You resurrected as me. I've got that same resurrection power and I have life and purpose and I build community around me to help unbind me from the lies of the enemy and remind me who I am. Can we worship? Can we sing? Your name is victory, God. Because at the end of the day, I want to be like Jesus says, you know why you're great? It's because you point people to me. You point people to me. He's the great one. He's the one who never, never fail, can give you new life. Let's worship him right now as we sing your name is victory, God.